1: This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm, please visit excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn.
2: So welcome to the conversation on Colloquium. And today I have... I think given how old I am, you would qualify as a very old friend That's because what I'm talking about. I think I've known you since I was 18, probably freshman in college. We won't, we, we would spend like half the show talking about how we know each other, but needless to say, multiple shared connections between Nashville, Wesleyan, etc. but Brent taylor thank you for coming on the show man
0: you know it's my pleasure i'm so excited to be here and to see your virtual face you're right it is a tangled web that we weave so we'll just spare the audience of all of that suffice it to say we're pretty comfortable in each other's company
2: hey i would say that we put some time in together very briefly so you know most people listen to the show i'm a new yorker who married a nashville girl My wife's family knew Brent forever growing up. And then my wife and I went to Wesleyan, which is where Brent went, and my brother went. So between all of that, known each other a long time, and since I've moved to town, he's been a close friend, and I'm excited to have him on the show. Maybe we'll just kind of fast forward through high school, through college, get into the professional career, because I'm super curious to hear about your stint as in investment banking, then you did the healthcare deal, and now you're in this design Thinking world, which I want to spend the majority of the time working on. So maybe in your own words, what was that journey to your current gig look like?
0: So the, the shortest way to describe that would be an accident. There was really nothing intentional about that. I leaving school, you know, you're kind of counseled for sure in a couple of directions with an economics major, and I was interested in business and finance, and so. I chose to do investment banking, but also knew I wanted to be in Nashville. So found the one opportunity here and pursued that real hard, had a wonderful and a terrible time of anyone who's been in the investment banking world knows, but learned so much and took that into a corporate finance role in healthcare. So it was really just, you know, doing all sorts of products, and industries in the role that I was in, in investment banking, and then really focused on outpatient oncology was the kind of company I was working with, and mainly focused on capital raising and M and A there. And then um, I'm going to credit the dynamic leader, someone who's had a pretty big role in my professional life. His name's Tim Petrikin. He was a CEO. He kind of tapped me on the shoulder one day and said, "Hey, I like your analytical mind." <clears throat> but I see that you care a lot about our patients also. And I think that you should apply that to our patient experience and not just our corporate finances. And I was like, sure, I'll try anything once. And so he sent me to Intermountain Healthcare, which is in Salt Lake city and they're kind of the the quality improvement Mecca in the U S there are a few other systems that are great, but they're the ones that share and educate other professionals. And so I studied under Dr. James for a little bit and came back and was just applying that and with our patient experience. And what happened was very quickly, I realized when I'm doing quality improvement, a colleague of mine, his name's Parker Gates. He was kind of simultaneously went to the D school at Stanford and came back and was in charge of innovation. And we realized when we're working with our staff and folks that to them, it was really all just change, right? And there's a, there's actually a big difference between quality improvement and innovation, but it's also a fine line. And so for them who are taking care of patients, we, we just started to cross paths a lot, and we realized we need to have more of a portfolio approach. And so then I started working on these innovation projects using design thinking with him and running quality improvement. Long story short, a lot of leadership change. I ended up taking over innovation when Parker left full-time to form Stoked, the company that I'm with now. And I started freelancing with Stoked and then more leadership change and it became kind of a team I didn't really want to work with. And so I left and joined Stoked full-time after freelancing for a couple of years. So it was really just follow the gravity of your own personal interest with one big catalyzing invitation to try something different from the boss.
2: So before we kind of jump into this design thinking stoked story, what are your thoughts about the current conversation about quality of life, culture within investment banking? That's been something that's been highlighted a lot recently. You did your typical two-year stint there. Do you think it's inherently set up to be this way? Do you think it is able to change? What are your thoughts based on your experience?
0: I mean, I feel like I should choose my words carefully. My perspective was that there were certain MDs that I worked with, and we would actually laugh about it a lot as analysts. Like certain MDs I would work with would go in with your standard pitch deck, throw it on the table, probably not even open it and just have a conversation. And others would be like, all right, I need to prepare for every possible scenario and would go in with like a 150 page deck where we've done an incredible amount of analysis and essentially free work. And just sitting on the sidelines, like it's easy for a young person to sit there and be critical and not really have any experience. So, you know, it's probably what I say is not worth a lot, but now having matured a little bit in my career, I can see it. You're either going into that with fear or you're going into it with confidence. And I think so, like there's so much work that is created in that line of business that's really just compensating for people's fear going into these kind of consequential meeting rooms. And so I do think there's huge opportunity to improve the quality of life, but I don't think culturally it's tenable. And I don't, I don't see it as very different. So one of my um, best friends who you also know is a transplant surgeon and we talk a lot about surgical training and what that culture is like. And I mean, he's probably the only person I know that has done way crazier hours than I did during that stint. And it's certainly not healthy. It's certainly not okay, but I can see how it's necessary there in a different way. There's a cultural element, but also like it's pretty consequential operation that you're going into. You need to refine your skills. And there are so many complications in investment banking. It's kind of like, yeah. You know, there are specific things that are going on with businesses and you need to understand the nuances, but no one's dying and we're fundamentally doing the same thing. We're capitalizing businesses and it's just not that it's actually not that complicated. So I do think there's ample opportunity, but culturally, you know, everyone else had to do it. And so who's going to break that chain? Who's going to be the one that's like, oh, yeah, I had to bust my ass. But no, I don't really think it's necessary that you do. You got to they, they weed out talent.
2: Yeah, the, the fraternity model of if I had to do this when I was a pledge, so do you, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. And so really, same question, but on this next phase of a professional life that you went through, I'm looking at your LinkedIn profile to just get a better scope of timeline here. And you were the director of culture and strategy at E+, but that was 10 years ago before really culture was considered a corporate dialogue or imperative, and so I assume you were one of the first groups to, to have that conversation internally, but now it seems like it's the narrative a- across wall street and, and in the business world that culture and these type of things really do matter. And they also impact the bottom line. What did it feel like being a- on the forefront there versus what you're seeing in the papers today?
0: I mean, kind of like the wild West, I guess. And it's, it's interesting that you noticed that because the way that that happened was Okay private equity backed business. When I was still in my finance role, we had a founding investor who was like, time for me to get some liquidity on my investment. So we recapped the business, new private equity company came in, Tim, the CEO after about a year was like, I think I'm, I think I'm done here. He kind of, I think he knew it the whole time, but you got to sell the business. Right. And so then they brought in a new CEO. That's part of the leadership change that I was talking about. And so he wanted to give me the role of the director of strategy. And I'd been doing all of this quality improvement and innovation work. And I knew from that experience, we can talk about the strategy all we want, but culture eats strategy for lunch every single day. So I'll work in strategy, but I know that it's really about these people that I've been working with for a while and being able to create an environment and relationships where they feel as though they have the right amount of both sort of support and autonomy to drive any strategy that we might come up with. And so I told them, I'll take it, but you got to give me culture also. And so to your point, they were kind of like, sure, who cares? And I actually spent more of my time on Uh, that's maybe not fair I spent at least equal amount of time on culture and trying to really supplement what we had like I say we I was not on the executive team but I was working with the executive team for strategy so what the strategy that we came up with and trying to supplement that with that's great I'm glad we want to do that but what's the environment that we have to create to allow that to happen So it's really, it was me and I was just making it up as I went, you know, (laughs) it was like, okay, let's try this out. So it felt very much like the wild west.
2: Yeah. Well, I think it feels like way to a lot of people still, (laughs) right? And so was that experience what led you to do this? What I see as like freelance, independent consulting gig that eventually led to you working full time at Stoked?
0: It was. So in doing this sort of work, this market emerged and you really have to, in my opinion, credit the D school at Stanford with creating an, just like almost like a movement around design thinking and really David Kelly. And then as kind of the visionary behind that, but so, as we're doing this work, and it's early on in the D School's formation, really, we're some of the first people who have been to the D School and are kind of coming back to industry and trying to apply it. And we're just really active. And so, going back to how did this happen accidentally, what happened is all these companies would call the D School and say, Hey, it's really expensive for us to send our entire team to Palo Alto. Would you maybe send some of your folks to us? And they said, no, um, we don't do that. But we know a lot of people who are, you know, D school, executive education alums. Maybe they would be interested. And so they would just call Parker, who is my colleague that I was working with, and say, hey, do you
1: ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.